Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. This is Matt Carpenter, and I'm pleased today to introduce to you Mr. Timon Klein. Timon is an author. He is a, uh, a lawyer. He's an attorney who works in New Jersey, graduated from Rutgers Law School from Westminster Theological Seminary, and he also is a part of a group called the Craig Center for the Westminster Standards at uh, Westminster. So, Timon, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. So, Timon has written a good bit about the Puritans, and that's they are a, a, an interesting topic. That there's a lot of both information and misinformation about them. So, you know, just to start out with, Timon, what is it that that really stirred your interest initially in the the New England Puritans? And it, feel free to start before New England, if you would like, but, but just what is it that, that started your interest there? Yeah, no. And it is, and it is the, the New England Puritans that, uh, that sparked my interest initially. So it is that particular group of, of Puritans, um, which, you know, of course, to, to understand them well, you have to understand not only their background in old England, but also their, um, interaction with Old England that continues. Uh, uh, Francis Bremer has some, who's a really good Puritan scholar, has some um, good good works showing that, you know, they were never isolated once they came to New England intellectually or in terms of communication. So there, there's a lot of transatlantic uh, friendship. I think he, you know, would kind of rephrase it that way. Um, and they remain very attached and interested politically in what's going on back home. So it is, a, you know, a whole group, but a, the New England style or the New England instantiation of Puritanism is what first got me interested. And it was reading, gosh, probably uh, maybe close to 10 years ago. I'm not sure how long it was, but reading Perry Miller's two volumes, The, the New England Mind. Um, and it was the only, I think I've said this before somewhere, but it's one of the, it's the only book I can remember Um finishing both of them and immediately uh, starting it over again um, because I was so compelled by not just the the narrative he he tells which um, you know for it for an atheist non-theologian it's amazing what he gets right um, especially writing in the 30s 40s and 50s um, with much more limited source material and those things he gets so much right um, but his uh, you know his prose is also, uh, incredible. Same thing with Edmund Morgan and, and some other people around that period. And historians don't write that way anymore. Um, so I was just enthralled with the the work and you know how good it was, but then also the subject matter. And I had by that point done kind of the uh, the Banner of Truth you know tour, which is great. Mm-hmm. You know, reading all the uh, things that they were putting out at the time, which is you know heavy on devotional material. I would I would say or um, right. or, or maybe just purely theological commentaries, that sort of thing, which is great. Um, and that was, um, those works, you know, were, were very, especially Thomas Watson, um, you know, Richard Sibbs and some of these very beneficial to me personally, just as works of devotion and, you know, kind of companions for your, your Bible study. 
but it was historically uh, having kind of my historical imagination awakened, I guess you might say, was was Perry Miller writing on the New England Puritans. And then I just started uh, reading as much as I could on the, the topic. And um, again, even as much uh, bad material that came out of that same period, because Miller really got everyone excited about him again and interested. Um, so there's some bad stuff, you know, very liberal stuff from the period. But um, again, what is um, mistaken about some of those works is made up for in their their prose and their kind of enthusiasm for their for their subjects. Um, so then from there, I you know started working much more uh, diligently. Probably by the time I was getting to grad school um, on you know primary source material, and that um, has continued to hold my interest. Um, and I think the thing, sorry to drone on here, but the thing that interests me most maybe about the the Puritans uh, in New England is, you know, there's a there's a perennial problem in Puritan studies with definition of like, what is what is Puritanism? Um, and isms are always that way. But the the way I conceive of it, at least in New England, and this is this is influenced by Miller, um, though it's not all he would say about them is as a um, I think of Puritanism in New England as a socio-political project. Um, and that's what, uh, that's how you determine when it begins and when it ends, um, and which people are Puritans and which are not. This is why I would say Jonathan Edwards is not a Puritan. Um, he's a Congregationalist minister in 18th century, uh, Massachusetts. He's not a Puritan, right? So, um, that is, so that aspect of them is what has continued to hold my interest is their, um, their model for society and their, um, their localism, their communal life, their, uh, legal thinking, all the all those sorts of things, um, has has continued to hold my interest, and that's probably what I write most on uh, about them. Well, I know, I mean, so so you you've introduced a lot, and and I think for for most uh, guys, so I'm forty, and a, a, a lot of the, the the young restless reformed type, which I proudly claim to not have been a part of at any point in my life. But coming into Calvinism, many read the Puritans uh, because they were mm-hmm. outed by Mark Dever and John Piper and, and, and others. So, so they were talked about. But, but again, it was only their inner uh, spirituality focus. Mm-hmm. And so it was very interesting to see that, that these people were, they did actually have a life outside of their personal quiet time. So, you know, so, so that, that, that is an important and missing element for, for many. Mm-hmm. And the number of people I've read who've cited them as, as good examples is striking. I, I, I think probably Christopher Lash, I remember years ago in, Oh boy. Uh, it, I think the true and only heaven. I think that was mm. the, the, the book that he, he refers to them positively as, as good examples of people who knew how to conserve. And of course, uh, Marilyn Robinson, who there's plenty of, you could, we could say a lot about Marilyn Robinson, but she doesn't blast the Puritans. She, 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 mm-hmm. she, she speaks, with a degree of warmth that is uncommon. So mm-hmm. anyway, it, it is, 
for a time, for a long time, they were simply pushed aside, and 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 it was they acted like people acted like, well, we don't want to claim them, but but now it seems like there are at least some, probably still contra- contrarians, uh, but some who who do appreciate them. So let's take another what could be a very broad question, but. Why did the Puritans come to the American colonies? Or mm-hmm. why, why did they leave? Yes. So the, uh, this, this may be somewhat of what you're getting at or referring to. Um, you know, the common, I think, narrative that most people hold, you know, wh- whatever we can call this, the high school kind of textbook uh, level narrative, if you like, the um, would, be, would begin with, you know, the, the separatists of Plymouth, um, who are to be distinguished from who settle uh, 10 years later in, in 1630 in uh, Massachusetts Bay and uh, a couple years before that in Salem and and then on to Connecticut and New Haven and, and uh, on around. Um, so usually the narrative usually begins with, you know, the pilgrims, as they're they're usually called now. And um, and the narrative is you know, basically one of, of religious liberty, of a persecuted people uh, fleeing tyranny um, to come and establish, uh, basically to come and establish what ends up being Rhode Island. And and that's, you know, Rhode Island is kind of made to be the narrative of all of it. Um, and that's, I, I don't believe that's the case with uh, Plymouth, and it's certainly not the case with uh, Massachusetts Bay. Um Certainly, so Perry Miller, you know, which, by the way, Marilyn Robinson studied with Perry Miller. So that's part of hmm. the, uh, her interest there. Um, and lots of people did, uh, you know, that were influenced by Miller. He had uh, his biggest influence might be getting, you know, the city on the hill references into, uh, you know, it's not till after Miller repopularizes Winthrop's sermon um, that you start seeing it quoted from uh, JFK on everyone. Right. I don't know if Trump but Obama did and everyone in between um, in speeches, Reagan, probably most famously, uh, you know, for conservatives. Um, so it really did. He really did put it back into the popular imagination and you see a lot more interaction. Um, and, the, and the same is for, you know, for Christians. And so this narrative starts taking on a lot of importance of what is it about? And we see that uh, generally, you know, with things like the 1619 project, there's a lot more, the so-called history wars, um, have been something that have occupied not just historians, but uh, cultural commentators and, and the like for, you know, especially the past five years and maybe the past decade. Um, and the Puritans are a part of that. So, you know, Christians are interested and usually it's this religious liberty narrative. Um, certainly in Massachusetts Bay, I think Miller says the reason he begins with them is they're the, the first politically self-conscious settlers um, or colonists, you know, in, in America that, you know, 1607, uh, Jamestown is a disaster. Uh, there's these little fishing villages up and down the coast that throughout the, um, that, that same few decades, early first decades of the 17th century that are, you know, purely economic enterprises, outposts. Um, in some ways, Salem was originally something like that. Uh, not, not sure to be successful. Um, and, and Plymouth is, uh, you know, if you read William Bradford's journal, I mean, it's a struggle for them to even get off the ground uh, to get here. It's very sad. Um, and they get here and it's not uh, it's not all that important actually. 
Um, Massachusetts Bay, you know, Winthrop comes over with a thousand person fleet and with very uh, influential, educated and materially wealthy people um, with with a lot of backing and um, some good political and legal maneuvering to get their uh, center of control, their headquarters, um, not tied to London, right? They can move it around. That's someone leaves that out of the charter. And so they come to establish a government um, in many ways, even though it starts out with the model, the, uh, the organization of a corporation, um, they come to establish a society in their own image, you know, in the way that they, they want to. So it's not for everybody. Um, and this is borne out by the, the comments from Puritan patriarchs themselves. So there's by the you know, 1680s, there's um, a lot more immigration and there's there's new sects that are arriving um, that are dissenting groups, Quakers, Anabaptists, all kinds of things. And uh, there's specifically in 1680s, maybe 81 or 85, the, there's a group of Anabaptists from Charlestown that start publishing in print this kind of idea that um, the founders of Massachusetts Bay, Richard Mather, John Winthrop, all these people, it was all about religious liberty and they're being denied the franchise and this is unfair and it's, it's incongruent with the founding. And the, the uh, you know, church leaders, specifically Samuel Willard, quickly disabuses them of this this idea that it was for toleration or anything like that. This is, uh, as Nathaniel Ward very uh, wrote the most famously, the body of, uh, of um, liberties for Massachusetts in 1641, uh, said, you know, they have all the religious liberty in the world to go elsewhere. Um, this, is, this is basically their view of, of what they're doing. So the idea is to come and establish a um, well-ordered, you know, coherent and cohesive uh, socio-political order, uh, both in church and state, um, that they will, you know, in many ways they do have these eschatological expectations, but even those are, are exaggerated in the way they actually thought about it. I think their, their main goals were actually short-term, uh, which was to act as a sort of counter model to um, maybe Scottish Presbyterianism in Scotland, um, or, uh, you know, just th there weren't that many alternatives in uh, England at the time, but it's very clear that there's there's instability and things maybe up for grabs. They're going to go and provide, a, you know, an example of what is to be done. And in the meantime, they want to be generally left alone so they can do things the way they want. Um, and that's what gets them in trouble later. But um, so so they they come to America. They come to Massachusetts to establish a particular vision of society that is not, um, you know, a free for all, and it's not uh, welcoming to to everyone. Um, I don't I don't think it would be fairly described as hostile to anyone, but they're very clear about what they're doing, um, and that and that there's plenty of land for people to go establish societies the way they want to. Um, they were not. Pardon me for interrupting. So no, no. what I'm what I hear you say is they were not a liberal society. Yeah. In fact, they were purposefully illiberal, or yeah. we might even say conservative. <laughs> With yeah, yeah. I, Go ahead. I think that's right. Um, if you're familiar with uh, Gillis Harp's really good new book, um, oh. Protestantism and, and, and American conservatism, something like that. 
right. really good. His chapter, his chapter in there. I mean, he's not a and doesn't claim to be a New England, you know, expert. And it's a it's a survey, you know, it's a, a sweeping book. But his chapter on uh, New England is really good, and um, you know, he includes them in this. Uh, is good at describing them, you know, fairly briskly, um, but I think in a fair way of of what they're doing. And so they are, you know, they're seeking, of course, um, as as Puritans to uh, purify the the fu- fully reform the English church. This is why they maintain um, this legal fiction that they never separate from the Church of England. Um, and they come up with theories from William Ames that, you know, this this is what actually in the beginning the Church of England was polity wise. Um, you know, this this whole thing. So they they don't want to separate what they want to do is uh, reform, you know, which which if you're a sort of a Burkean conservative, you're going to recognize a um, necessity for for, you know, organisms to be conserved, have to grow and also be right. um, chastened, you might say, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, they're 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 certainly not, I think is it is fair to say there's not a liberal bone in their body. It's an anachronistic, you know, thing to, to analyze them this way. But for our purposes, I think it's fair to say that um, any kind of Whiggish history that treats them as the, um, you know, the forebears or the, the uh, sort of proto-liberal uh, or proto-democrats or whatever you want to say, they're, they're often employed in this way uh, to prevent, present a sort of seamless narrative from the 16th or the 17th century to the present of exactly what we are was, you know, in seed form in New England in, in 1630 is, you know, there's no, there's no basis for that. That's just not how they think about anything. Um, the, you know, as there, there's a really good book called Peaceable Kingdoms by Michael Zuckerman um, that goes all the way up through the 18th century describing township life in New England. And he just discusses how, you know, their general um, political disposition is one of um, minimizing difference. Difference is bad. They don't want pluralism. They don't want, you know, what we'd call now multiculturalism. They're all basically from the same county in England, most of them, at least in the beginning. Um, they're all of the same. Uh, they're supposed to be there for the same religious convictions. You know, they, they think it's necessary for a healthy polity, a healthy society um, to have as little disagreement as possible. Well, this is a, a fundamentally illiberal approach to society, too. Um, right. eradicated every turn, not necessarily violently, but, but disagreement on any level. They want homogeneity. Um, and because they want homogeneity because it provides peace. That's what would be their supreme, you know, political value at the, at, at the ground level. Um, so this, yeah, I think this is a very illiberal society and that's not even getting into what they actually do with, uh, you know, dissenters and these sort of things that won't, won't kind of conform. Um, you know, I, I doubt most uh, people who now go to Harvard would have enjoyed Harvard, uh, you know, 400 years ago. So, um, right. yeah, I would I would agree with that assessment. So that they, they there's a couple of ways actually to mm-hmm. take this, but 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 one that I found in your writing that has really intrigued me, talking about their their emphasis on conformity. Mm-hmm. Well, for one thing, just by observation, uh, their descendants have remained so. I mean, if, if there is a region of the United States that is more uh, homogenous than mm-hmm. anywhere else, uh, it, it's probably New England, especially the, the, the rural areas. 
of New England, yeah. you will yeah. you will see the same type of people. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. but in, in some of what I've read from you before, you've talked about their medieval inclinations, not just inclinations, mm-hmm. but, but but that they were a really a, a, a truly pre-modern people, whereas they're depicted now, like when you look at the English Civil War, as, as trying to bring in, you know, the Puritan side, people say they were trying to bring in modern republicanism and, yeah. again, Whiggish historical view, of, whereas with what I have read from you and from others, that was not the New England Puritans. That They were trying to, to have a society that would look something closer to England in the year 1000 than mm. England in the, you know, than anything it looked like in the 1800s. Yeah. So they're, they're certainly very, you know, they provide lots of social commentary and, and their sermons sometimes do this, but, you know, they're very, uh, of course, shocked or horrified by the, um, the state of England, especially in the cities and the, um, you know, they're not as, as dour and, uh, all of that as, as people present them to be. Um, but they're also not, uh, you know, they would have similar commentary we might have today of, you know, the, they will um, critique, you know, sort of materialism, uh, chasing fashion, you know, all these, these sorts of things that um, we were still tempted by and might define our, our cultures just in the extreme now, we might say, but um so they're very concerned with with that, and they don't um, they don't don't desire to have that imported to what they're they're trying to build. Um, and what what they do want is, um, you know, somewhat like like you said, they they're very interested in, in building these sort of homogenous communities that are centered on a shared religion and um, you know high levels of accountability, uh, really up in your your business. You know, we, we might say. Um, a very localized form of or involvement in, in politics, but at the same time, um, willingness to afford a, a, a lot of leeway or deference to their rulers, um, as, both in church and state. So, you know, you do have this aspect of congregationalism where, of course, there's there's a large or a higher degree of lay participation. But once the rulers are, are in place, once the elders are in place, you know, at that point, then it's then it's over. You don't have this ability to rescind the offer at will. Um, they, the, even the New England Puritans also um, underappreciated aspect of them as, as congregationalists, which is a problem for Baptists in some ways, is they um, uh, the, the New Englanders have a very high view of synodical authority even. And uh, Increase Mather has these comments um, where, you know, he, he basically says, you know, there's no real option besides to conform to what the Senate determines, um, even though, you know, it, it doesn't function like the SBC. We'll say that. Um, that's not how, what they're doing out there. So in that way, you know, very, some very traditional um, pathologies or maybe a traditional disposition um, things I've commented on, I know, um, on in the past in terms of their, what I will call their medieval, uh, you know, character, is on the one hand, uh, David Hall points this out in one of his, his works, very good Puritan scholar for the most part, um, that, that their, their sort of spirituality um, and cosmology and these things are still fundamentally medieval. 
World of Wonder, um, Worlds of Wonder. That's right. That that's right. Yeah, very good book. Um, talk some of that and about that in there. Um, and so, so there, you know, you have their communal life. We would we would say it's it's not modern looking the way they're they're running their towns. It's not modern looking at the for the time. It doesn't you know they all spend a lot of time in the Netherlands, or, or many of them do Leiden and, and Amsterdam and so on. Um, but it doesn't look like those cities. They they're building very you know very um, communal and older um, style societies, um, and and their experience of town life would have been a lot more like what medieval people would have experienced. So if you read you know good biographies of of Luther that will give you some kind of background commentary on um, the at that time the rise of what we'd now say a middle class and technological change. But for most people, they're very rural. You never leave your town, you know, this, this kind of thing. Um, that's a lot more their experience. And some of that is just geography, you know, where they are. I would say that the, their, their location at that time has a, a, a great effect on uh, them as, as people in this way. So you've transported yourself into a um, new range of possibilities because it's unpopulated or because you don't have anything developed. So you're, you're able to, um, for, for better or worse, um, but the other thing that I always that I, I know I've referred to them as being fun, fundamentally medieval would be in their their political theory, um, and I think this is um, somewhat true of, of reformed orthodoxy at the time generally. I don't I don't think this has um, is being been discarded you know on the other side of the pond either at the time for the most part. There's certainly as you know in the you know the English Civil War period there's some crazy stuff that emerges and goes on. Um, but in general, um, you know, the, the reformers still have very, uh, traditional views of church and state. Um, the adjustments that are made are to deal with papal authority. Um, and I think to hurdle back over late medieval innovations about, uh, political theory that come really from, uh, maybe Pope Boniface onward. And are kind of doing what they do with many doctrines, which is to get back behind, you know, the bad schoolmen or uh, late late medieval uh, changes that were maybe for for expedience sake or, or what have you. And they're wanting to recover um, older things. And so the the Puritans are like, you know, are obviously part of Reformed Orthodoxy and embody that. And so they're what I'll say that is medieval about them in this way is I think they have uh, they are working out and, and establish the older understanding of, of church-state interaction as, as a, analogous to the human person in body and soul, and that these things must be in harmony and must um, not simply, you know, coexist and certainly don't have a relationship of antagonism, but need to be provide mutual help and are ultimately ordered to the same final end, which is the glory of God. And so the, they write a lot about, um, you know, the magistrate's religious interest um, so do other, you know, Protestant reformers, magisterial reformers. Uh, Vermeule does this. Richard Hooker does this. Uh, Zwingli, Calvin, and uh, do this. You know, lots of others. So, um, but they, but they do this as well. And I've I've written on their election sermons that they provide every year. Is where you find a lot of this this talk um, from them, and they're very very good and refreshing in that way. Um, but they they're not thinking like modern people about. Uh, church and state or authority in general, you know, just because you have decided that papal authority is illegitimate doesn't mean you've cast off 
your your fundamental conceptions of what authority is, where it comes from, and what it's supposed to do. Right. I know that's a standard trope of many that once the Reformation started, then there was no source of authority. So, so yeah, this is Brad Gregory or or whoever you want to pick. Right, right. All all of those guys, it's just, you know, that they say Pandora's box was opened. And so no one actually maintains authority. And of course you you can push back and say, well, we don't, it's not really clear that, that, that the priests in 16th, early 16th century Europe were exactly paragons of virtue, either inner or outward virtue. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. which is worse, you know, d- d- diverging from the Pope, his authority on, on, on what happens at the Eucharist or from, you know, diverging from the traditional Decalogue of thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, w- which one actually is, is the worst thing. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and the, you know, this is, people forget the, um, you know, the, the very proximate in terms of, you know, historically proximate, um, not experientially for the people on the ground, but it's still, you know, there, there's a long, um, there's, there's this period between the conciliar uh, crisis, you might call it from, you know, Constance um, onward, that is sort of this fizzling or, or maybe you'd call it boiling. It's up and down. Um, and, you know, to, to the extent that there's something like the Reformation going to happen, you know, there's already talk about reform and these things from Erasmus or whomever way before Luther. Uh, technological changes also make this somewhat inevitable, that the democratization of information and these sorts of things are going to change concepts or at least function of authority. Um, so in, in some ways, and this is not unique to me at all, but you could say that the, you know, the Protestant Reformation is the triumph of conciliarism uh, from the, the late medieval period from, you know, whoever you want to pick up on, Marsilius of Padua and uh, Nicholas of Kew and, and some of these figures that are that are writing, you know, in the uh, 15th century and before 14th, 15th century about, um, you know, modes and, and styles of authority. And maybe that the, you know, the the real authority should be um, council-based because it comes from the body of the faithful and these sorts of things. So, you know, these were not new questions. And in some ways, because the church didn't deal with them properly um, a couple hundred years before Luther, they, you know, they could have prevented um, such an explosive reformation, we might say, if they really wanted to, if they had had the will to do so. And this is... um, you know, some of this is self-consciously acknowledged and furthered by um, the Reformed Orthodox in the 17th century. If you read Lex Rex from Rutherford, he cites uh, multiple conciliarist councils, including the Council of Basel is always a big one for uh, Reformed people um, that they think is important. And it was and it was not acknowledged by the papacy. Right. That's part of the point is why they cite it. But it was a legitimate council of, of, um, of bishops. And so they will cite these things. They also cite, you know, more immediate precursors, um, both in and out of England, like John Mayer and some of these political theorists that were questioning, you know, um, styles of authority. So it wasn't like this came out of the blue and it wasn't like the opinions of the the reformers were so outlandish uh, as I think some Catholic historians today treat it as. 
um, you know, this was this was a long kind of process uh, that all of a sudden happened really fast. Um, uh, Heiko that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Harvest all, 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 all that. That's right. Very good. Uh, Obermann's book, both uh, on Beale and on on Luther, you know, Man Between God and the Devil, are both must reads. Very helpful in the medieval background and understanding uh, the reformers through that. So, you know, I always I always take those critiques from modern Catholics as being a bit unserious and not really dealing with with history so much as they're dealing with polemics with a historical kind of it, it, in many ways what we're talking about it happens with the Puritans. There certain events are put in service of current positions. Um, right. And so I, I, I don't, you know, not that Bradley, Brad Gregory is a, um, you know, stupid person. He's a very learned man, but I think that, right. that I found that um, his position to be remarkably uncompelling. Um, so it, it, it's an easy jump to make when you have an ax already there to grind. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and he's right. not going to get a lot of pushback from fellow Roman Catholics on that position. Right. So. Right. No, he's going to get no, no push pushback. And um, in some ways, many Protestants, you know, kind of go along with it because they actually have a, um, you know, more of a, a liberal disposition on many things. So if this radical right. break happens, then you're freed up to move briskly along rather than wrestle yeah. with your own tradition and what it means. So I think there, there's two things going on there. Uh, one's intended by Gregory and one's not, but it's a, it's a, you know, very obvious externality of, of what he's done. Uh, and, and it's not just him, of course, but. Right. Right. Well, but because the unintended reformation is cited by so many, both Protestant yeah. and Catholic, you can't yeah. avoid the arguments there. Yes. So, and, and, but speaking, were you about to say something else? No, no, no. Go ahead. Speaking of, of the, the Puritans and how they are cited for, for whatever one's pet cause is, Max Weber and, mm. and his view of Calvinist and capitalism, that, mm. you know, has, that has a lot of traction in certainly in, in textbooks. So I taught public school history for 15 years. So that's mm -hmm. still to this day, a prime emphasis in high school history. That, yeah. That's, that's, and, and also the first couple of, you know, the, the undergraduate history classes is still taught. So, you know, so we hear that the Puritans were free market, almost libertarian capitalists mm -hmm. and so it doesn't sound like though from what you've what you've said here their perspective on society does not jive very well with modern free market capitalism the way we know it yeah i would say you know they're they're generally adverse to the free market both in speech and ideas as well as uh, material goods they um they're not they're not interested in um you know sort of setting up a jeffersonian uh, rules of the game and then letting it play out each according to his own relative industry and and you know fair's fair let's just whatever happens is good it's an effect of the market whether that's morally and intellectually or uh, materially, so I don't think they're interested in that at all. They're very, 
as I, as I've said before, you know, their, their view of what society, how society is, how it functions and, and what it is, is still uh, very organic. And this is part of their uh, medieval uh, disposition. So if society is an organism and you get this, this, some of this flair, you know, even from Winthrop's sermon, we already brought up the model of Christian charity. Um, you know, each, each part is working together. He's of course pulling from Paul, but um, each part is working together. Each part is not greater than the whole. Um, and each, um, the whole works for the, the ultimate good of each part, but not uh, separate from the other parts. So there's no, you know, man is never an island. There's no such thing as um, a state of nature where you're, you have a possibility of existing apart from a community. Um, man is, it's not good that he should be alone, right? So man is communal. Um, and you see this not only in their kind of comments on political theory, but even their laws. So for instance, young men or anybody, certainly young women, but young men were not allowed to live as bachelors. They either had to get married or live with a family. That's, and that was enforced. Mm. Um, the idea is you don't have, um, not only will they have funny, you know, things they say about, uh, young men being prone to vice and shouldn't be left alone, but the idea is you need to be participating in, in society. Um, so this doesn't mean, of course, that they weren't trading or that they weren't um, somewhat right. industrious. You would have to be um, in the you know the wilderness, um, or that they're not interested in in having their businesses and their farms and all this be profitable. That's that's not. But that doesn't make um, that's that's not enough. It's not sufficient for you know the the Weberian thesis just to be people who engage in economy. Um, their interest is a, you know, godly and cohesive and peaceable um, society. And this is, uh, involves every aspect. So, um, you know, nothing can sort of become disordered or disproportionately prioritized. So there's a great example um, in, uh, I'm going to forget the year, but still mid 17th century, where a man who is from Ipswich, Massachusetts, which is, is uh, north of Boston, uh, now Essex area, he um, he is missing church too much, um, and his excuse is that he has to tend to his farm, and it's too far away um, from the church the the church house to um, make it all the time. And this is of course a good excuse because if you're in a an agrarian, largely agrarian society, you know if the cows get out, you have to tend to them. So they're they're very understanding of that. Their solution from the general court is to make him sell his land and buy a farm that's closer to church <laughs> because therefore the excuse is gone and you can't. It, so easy fix. We'll find you a good farm that's comparable. Uh, you still need to make a living. But now if the cows get out, you can still make it to, you know, to service or people can help you. So that that would be an example of the, the economic being uh, uh, subservient to larger aspects of social, political and religious life that are prioritized even to um, someone's detriment, certainly to the detriment of their choice in a libertarian free market kind of way. Um, so I don't think it would ever be fair to, to call, I think something Weber and to some extent Tocqueville later pick up on is, is a large amount of activity and a large amount of uh, work and dedication, um, but they miss in some ways, Tocqueville does better than Weber, but miss the rationale and the conviction behind it. Um, and the purpose. Right. So, I mean, but that, that perspective on 
I mean, of course, they all knew that, that man's chief end was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we have individualized that to, to, to the degree that really that that's for us, modern Americans, that's between you and your conscience. You know, how you glorify God, as long as you're not overtly breaking the Decalogue then we're not going to say anything. But it sounds, what you're saying, for them, they believe that there was a particular way and, and that, that we were called to glorify God and that it was their job as a civil society to help through the use of the law and judgment to help her members glorify God. No, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think a very important point about um, our own understanding of the function and, and purpose of law, um, you could say policy too, whatever, uh, generally, um, I think it's how it always functions, but you, you have to um, it both embrace that and do it self-consciously. So what I mean by that is, you know, this, this is a generally, this isn't a Puritan conviction, this is a generally Christian conviction going back you know, at least to, to Thomas Aquinas, who says, you know, the, the purpose of law and of, and of government, of rule, um, is to lead men to virtue. That's the, the point of it. So it's not just a lamentable and necessary evil that we have authority um, on earth. It's actually a good. And um, the, the, both West, Western Christians generally, but just to stick with our, our Protestant brethren, you know, go, go beyond that, as Aquinas did as well, where, you know, you have... Um, authorities like, you know, Franciscus Junius, um, Richard Baxter, um, Vermeule, uh, who already mentioned Hooker, already mentioned all these, you know, people that we'll, we'll read and, and others besides that would say, you know, it's actually because, because man is body and soul, as we talked about earlier, and the magistrate rules over men and he doesn't rule over just animals, they have more than a temporal interest and, and they have an eternal one. And if his job is to rule for their good, um, in some way, it's his job to lead them, you know, to God. Now, he doesn't have the legislative or direct competency to promulgate doctrine. So what that ends up looking like is leading them uh, both by example, um, promoting and protecting the church and promulgating and protecting the church's doctrine so that this is all conducive to man having a virtuous and religious and God honoring life. Um, and that's part of his his duty. Um, I was just reading Richard Baxter yesterday in his short letter he wrote to an unnamed magistrate, and he's just he just made this comment. He made all these about you know the magistrate needs to needs to lead uh, you know people to to virtue. And one thing he points out is a is you if you have a prayerless uh, household as a magistrate, you're going to be to lack integrity. You're going to make poor decisions and you're going to be you're going to tell everyone else that it's OK to be profane. So this is like how, you know, how much they think the microscope is on leaders and how much they need to lead by example. But then also in their in their law, you can't um, blaspheme. You can't um, lead people. They still you know hold to the view that, uh, you know, murderer kills the body, but a, a, a both apostates and heretics kill souls. So that's worse. You know, so this is why mm -hmm. we punish these things. Um, in New England, you know, they're fairly lenient by standards of the day. Um, mo the most often exercised uh, punishment for obstinate um, uh, 
promulgation, open, you know, declaration of false doctrine or challenging of authority is banishment, which is just to leave and you, then you can't come back. You know, um, they only ever ex- exercise anything more severe when um, the banishment instructions are not are not abided by. Right. So um, right. this is the the view is is not to put a gun to anyone's head to force them to convert. This is a, a, a very typical evangelical mistake is if you start talking about any kind of coercion, it means forced conversion. And right. that's not what we're talking about. But conditions, material conditions, especially our, our laws and our policies and then our cultural signals or, or indicators are always coercive unto some kind of virtue, some kind of orthodoxy. Um, and the Puritans were very aware of this and um, did so self-consciously and on purpose because they think it's the uh, what society does and it's the proper um function for leaders in church and state to to do so it's it's not a a passive rule and they also don't um think that it's good to leave men to their own devices they need to be to be guided you know uh gently but but also firmly to what is what is true and so this is why you have franciscus junius saying you know it's the magistrate in his mosaic polity it's the magistrate's job to lead his people to the gates of eternal salvation something like that, I'm paraphrasing, but he says the gates, you know, eternal salvation. Um, And he does this through relationship, proper relationship with the church. But he's saying, you know, this is on you. You'll be judged by where you lead your people, what kind of virtue you lead them to. And the Puritans in New England thought the the same way about things. That sounds very, so when you're talking, you've referenced virtue several times. That itself is a very, Thomistic uh, and uh, going back Aristotelian view of man that yeah. is largely lost, but then it also, and I'm not I'm not saying that the two are the same, but but it reminds me a lot of uh, Andrew Willard Jones' work on church and state. Uh, mm-hmm. What was the, he, he had the book on the King of France. Uh, right, right. So, so that, I mean, and he's done a lot of, you know, Roman Catholic, though he is, he's done a lot of good work of bringing forth this perspective as a Roman Catholic. But it's not that the Puritans are just, they're on the same mountain and t- together. I mean, it's the same medieval view, I guess, of the role of society in helping yeah. man to glorify God. Yeah. It's, um, you know, society is to be, to be formative. In fact, it always is. We just now pretend it's not. Right. Um, that way we don't have to worry ourselves about how it's being formative. Um, but it always is. But they, they acknowledge that and in fact, embrace it and think this is the point um, of all of it. I mean, um, and, and Andrew Willard Jones's work is, is really good. And I don't think that's, uh, as you're saying, lost um, by the time of the Puritans are certainly the magisterial reformers. I mean, if you read um, and get kind of into someone like Zwingli might be the best on this in, um, you know, his his political writings. I mean, it's very clear from him that he has no no concept of distinction at all. There's simply the, the Christian communion that has a distribution of labor. And that's pretty right. much it. You know, there is no real, he doesn't have an idea of what a state would be. This is a, um, 
you know, comes a century later after him to really have a nation state idea. Um, so you have a you have various forms of power and you have uh, certain responsibilities. Each of them are given, but they sh- they're not um, so separate that they shouldn't help each other. And you might have someone, um, uh, John Cotton or John Davenport, it's unclear who, who wrote it, but very good work in 1663, um, a, a discourse about civil government and it's from, you know, New England, uses, you know, uses a lot of Franciscus Junius and some other continental uh, reformers to talk about, um, you know, church and state are two species of the same genus, and that genus is the, the Christian community or Christian society. Um, and so they both have their appointed um, function, their appointed competencies, but um, they have the same author, they have the same source of power, they have the same... Um, subjects, which is man, um, the only thing distinct is is their immediate end, which is one is the, the spiritual, one is the temporal innocence, you know, that's what they're more focused on, but ultimately they're, they have the same final end, therefore in between there's also a lot of overlap, and this is where they um, will pull for, you know, mutual aid to each other and that sort of thing. Um, mutual accountability, the, the, whole, the whole bit. So, yeah, th- it's very foreign to us um, even at the most basic level that we just started at a few minutes ago, which is just an idea before you even get to church and state that society is formative and that it's meant to, as an instrument to lead man to a virtuous life. Um, and of course, even, even our, you know, read in the best light and in the, in the sort of classical tradition that, that still influenced them, even our founders of this country were, were generally still of that persuasion. I mean, even the, uh, I would say even Jefferson, you know, is my least favorite after Thomas Paine, uh, still thinks that way for the most part. Um, in, in many ways, even though I employ him as, you know, a trope and to, to uh, make fun of there, I think most of them, and then certainly many of the other ones like us, you know, Samuel Adams, John Adams, and, um, you know, George Washington, those guys and many of the founders we never talk about. Um, they still think this way in general, even if it's um, a, a laxer version, a more ecumenical version of, of a Christian country. Um, they still think this stuff is formative. That's, you know, why else would you pass laws? What else is the point of all this? Um, right. If, if a higher end than material prosperity is not in view, um, I think that's that's a conviction we've, we've lost. So would you say then, uh, so, so maybe two questions here. But because both come up at times, there's discussion certainly about the the two kingdoms idea, mm-hmm. and of course that has about as many definitions as it does proponents. So right. I know it can be difficult. But so the first question though is: Were, were the Puritans did they have a distinction between the kingdoms? And then mm-hmm. the, the the next is. Would you consider them theonomists? Because certainly modern theonomists mm. say that they are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, so so h- h- how do they match up there? Yeah. So um, very rarely, if ever, in, in as far as I can tell, do you see in the New England Puritans any any mention of something approximating two kingdoms as, as it's generally understood today, or even that, that language, I just, uh, just, it's hard to find. Um, there's certainly just as with, with all reformed 
um, orthodox of the period. There's an acknowledgement, of course, that, you know, there's an invisible realm that um, is, is ruled over immediately by Christ. And then there's a physical or temporal realm ruled over immediately by Christ uh, through many things. And Christ is Lord of all, and he should be recognized as such. This is what they mean when they even use the term the- or theocracy is not a rule by clergy, but it's just a recognition of Christ's preeminence by the, by everyone. Um, so, you know, uh, very basic to them. Um, so the only, the only kind of regime that's not a theocracy is, is a non-Christian one is, you know, so that would be their understanding of that term at the time. Um, so there's all of that, but in terms of using as it's often used today, you know, I, th- I think two kingdoms is, um, overworked for what it represents. And I w- I'm drawing for this on um, some good, you know, good secondary literature on Luther. William Wright is is really good on this. Um, Brad Littlejohn's written on this some as well. But um, where, you know, what Luther's doing with the concept is in some ways much more robust. It's much more of a, a sort of worldview. And he, he employs it in so many different ways that church and state is, is almost at the bottom of the list of his concern when he's talking about two kingdoms things. Um, you know, Calvin prefers much different language, but more importantly than the language is, you know, Calvin's um, situating of the church and the state, both in the temporal order, in the temporal realm, which means that your two kingdoms, however it exists, and as I've already mentioned, Zwingli, I don't, I don't see it there at all. Um, as it exists, um, it's not meant to correspond to church and state. It's meant to make a very rudimentary, non-controversial point, in my opinion, which is that there's an invisible and visible realm. Um, what it's employed to do today often is to just say this is this is a heuristic or um, these are terms to help us talk about church and state, two kingdoms. And then they'll drive it back to Augustine. I don't think this is how you read the city of God at all, but they'll do this kind of thing. Um so I find that a very limited utility. I find it much more useful if we're going to talk about church and state, if that's our conversation, the, um, to speak in older terms that I think the, the Puritans use, and I think uh, many others did, which is about the, um, you know, the spiritual and temporal powers on earth and how those are supposed to relate. And, and much of what we've already talked about is stemming from that uh, basic approach. So I think that's much more useful. Um, and so I generally um, critique certainly the version of, of two kingdoms that's coming out of Westminster West um, right. and things out there. I find, I find problematic, even though it's presented often as a historical case. I think it's um, it's not been demonstrated well, and I don't think it can be. I think the better historical work on the period um, it moves you in a different direction if you're interested in the church state question. If you're just kind of talking about you know, Luther's um, commentary on this life and the next or Christ, you know, resurrected and glorified and in victory and all these things. Yeah, there's, you know, those those terms are there and he's doing things. But I think it's I think it's misemployed. It's it's used in the wrong way. It's it was never meant to carry that kind of burden um, to your second point about theonomy. You know, as I've, I've written uh, at several places critiquing theonomy. Um, and we'll have a, a piece coming out soon about specifically this question with the uh, New England Puritans. Ian Clary has already done a really good job of critiquing theonomy at, at Mere Orthodoxy um, and its its attempt to use Puritanism in general. Um, he has a much broader kind of uh, emphasis and focus, and it's a really good article at, at Miro, Miro. 
Um, it's a review of Joe Boot's book, Mission of God, um, a bit of a longer review. Um, so I'm doing something different, which is specifically this New England question, because if you read, you know, Greg Bonson's uh, Theonomy and Christian Ethics at the end, he has an appendix um, where he includes uh, John Cotton's, or we they think it was written by John, John Cotton, maybe not, uh, Abstract of Laws of New England from 1641, probably published a little bit earlier, um, and uses that and has some has some comments before, a, a bit of a preface you know, and wants to claim the, the New England Puritans as theonomist. Uh, Joe Boot does the same thing, uh, you know, the, and will call himself and Rush Dooney and everyone before him new Puritans and say that they're the, the best uh, contemporary forebears of Puritanism. Uh, lots of definitional problems when they talk that way and everything, but to folk, try to not fight the hypothetical and, and answer the question. The problem, the main problem with theonomy is their their lack of a, a taxonomy of law that would be we would recognize generally as a Thomistic uh, taxonomy of law that's carried on by almost everybody. There's always tweaks going on to it, but it stays basically the way Thomas left it, which is to have you know a category of eternal, natural, uh, divine, meaning inscripturated, um, and human law, right? And this is and you there's it's a hierarchy and. Uh, Within the hierarchy, the the lower parts can't disagree or conflict with the higher parts. Um, you know, with eternal law being just God's essence and and not uh, ascertainable to us, the natural law is eternal law condescended to creatures, um, so that they it's what we know and can know about the eternal law. Um, divine law is you know su- supportive in that it's uh, specifically the Decalogue is a republication of the natural law. Um, and then human law is what you know we we make based on again trying attempting to be um, in agreement with the natural law and with scripture, not contradicting those, but the, and in some sense applying those to context to circumstances that are always changing. Um, and so it takes prudence and it takes uh, you know knowledge of of these things. Um, and so the problem with theonomy is when they look at the Old Testament at the Mosaic civil and judicial law. Um, you know, they have a very, I, I guess you could say, venerable uh, instinct, which is to take the Bible seriously, to not, not be embarrassed as a Christian of your of your ethical posture. Um, and this takes a somewhat biblicist form in them. But, the, you know, nevertheless, they are the one thing they're wanting to say is, look, I'm not embarrassed that God says this in Leviticus. I'm not embarrassed that in Deuteronomy it says this. That's great. Uh, the problem is they don't, at least according to our, our tradition, it's very strong. Um, I always recommend Junius's mosaic polity to people on this, which I've already mentioned, because it addresses this question head on, even before theonomy exists. Um, and, and others do as well um, on how how to use you know the mosaic code. And the problem is they don't recognize um, that law as being belonging to the the category of human law. And that doesn't mean it is made by humans, although of course it's brought through Moses, so there's a human uh, component there, but it's it's God stepping in as the legislature, legislator to apply his eternal law through natural law in context to circumstance. And this is why the Westminster Confession in 19.4 says that that law has, you know, uh, departed or, or however it puts it with that polity because human law is always tied to the circumstance. Now, 
everyone from Aquinas to Luther and others would say, if there's a particular mosaic judicial law that fits your context and works really well, you're of course free to use it. There's nothing wrong with them. God said it, but you don't have to. And this is the basic theonomic claim is that only that model is appropriate for any civil polity, that and no further. I mean, Bonson will even say things like this and this alone. So it's like a scripture alone kind of play. Um, and anyone who thinks otherwise is, you know, not thoroughly Christian. They're part of, they're not understanding the radical antithesis. They are probably confused by or, or enchanted by natural law, which all of them uh, reject um, as being a legitimate uh, authority. And so that's the problem. You know, it's not, it, the problem with theonomist is not, um, you know, there's a lot of goofiness that's whatever. We can deal with that a different way. Um, but their problem is they don't actually understand um, within our tradition, within the Christian, Western Christian tradition generally, how to think about law um, and, and its modes of promulgation, its ways it comes to us, and its basis for authority. So you will have many, many reformers writing uh, things like, um, you know, the reason you follow the Decalogue is not because Moses wrote it down. It's not because it's in scripture. That's not why it's authoritative. It's authoritative because it is an inscripturation of the natural law. That's where its authority is lodged. And Moses is the best exponent of the basics of that. And so you'll have people like Johannes Althusius, the great Calvinist jurist, saying the best way to know the natural law is, of course, scripture is helpful. Aquinas is the same thing. This helps uh, remind you of and, and teach you of basic things. Um, it's good to see good laws that reflect the natural law that teach you what that looks like. Um, and then, and then the teachings of the church. And this is basically what I'm appealing to is our tradition has, um, you know, an amazing range of, of works, amazing, amazing number of works on questions, this question directly and questions related to it that stem from it. Um, and I think the ominous have just not availed themselves of that or, and maybe intentionally so, because they see it as somewhat of a cop-out. And so you know, to get back to the, the question of the Puritans, there's nothing that in New England indicates a theonomic understanding of law. Um, you know, citing scripture when you present a, a legal code of some kind is not sufficient to say you're a theonomist. So what the theonomist can't be allowed to do is say the rest of us aren't allowed to appeal, appeal to scripture as a basis of authority for anything, you know, that you have to be all or nothing. That's right. that can't be, they can't be allowed to do that. Um, but what they'll, they'll say, they're very slippery with their terms is, you know, sometimes theonomy, it appears to just be um, the, the, the interest in living a God centered life. They'll talk about that with the Puritans. It's like, well, who, okay. You know, who's objecting to that. And so that can't, that's not what theonomy is in terms of its distinctiveness, or they'll say, you know, a, a biblically based ethics. It's like, well, this is still very amorphous. What does that mean? Um, and so they'll they'll play around with that with the Puritans and say, you know, look at all this this uh, look at their general focus, their orientation, their tenor in society. Look at their use of the Bible, their people of you know the book, all these things. But that's not the theonomic claim. The theonomic claim is it has the the Puritans would have to have said somewhere and actually done a, a direct transcription importation of the mosaic civil and judicial code and lived only by that and that would be it and they didn't do that there's plenty of 
good works, um, some of which theonomists will, like Bonson will cite and clearly didn't understand or didn't read the whole work, um, that make it very clear that this, this could never be described as a Bible commonwealth, um, as just being based on the Bible. They're Englishmen, they're, in, they're bringing in tons of common law stuff, precedent, um, all these things, you know, in fact, some of the things Bonson criticizes John Cotton on saying, like, he gets really close with this, but here's the problem with him. Well, the problem that Bonson doesn't like is John Cotton basically following the common law rule on a particular punishment. Right. So the pro and the issue for the context too, is, you know, if you're in the 17th century, um, the, the jurists like Matthew Hale have declared that Christianity is part of the common law. So now you're really confused because from the bench, there will be scripture cited. Well, I don't see any theonomists claiming that 17th century England as a whole was a theonomic country, but the, right. the judges are citing scripture. So there, there's more going on there in the intellectual kind of milieu that's that's so foreign to us um, that what theonomists do when they appeal to the Puritans uh, generally or certainly in New England is they're, they're you know snagging something off the surface that looks like it's agreeable to them. And they're not really understanding what's going on on the ground. So the answer is no, you know, long way of long, very long way of saying Puritans are not theonomists. No one before theonomists have really been theonomists. And anytime they make a historic claim to a sort of mainstream uh, scenario in our history, it's probably wrong. You know, who would be theonomist would be, you know, Anabaptist and Munster would be maybe theonomist because they're only using the Bible, you know, for any of their, any other kind of biblicist um, instantiation of, a, of social interaction would be your, and those never go well, and they've never really existed. So theonomy is a, in the reform world is an aberration in this sense and distinctly modern. Um, and there's simply no real precedent for it. Um, you know, maybe you can cherry pick things here and there, but it's not sufficient to demonstrate a historic case. Well, this has been really enlightening and very helpful. I mean, so, so there's a lot of other questions that I had. Probably don't need to try to get to those because I need to be. We need to be wrapping up. But I, you know, if so, so, I'll say for one, I would love to talk to you again sometime uh, if that great. would work. But yeah. if so, so last question. What less? What, what what are two or three at the most lessons that we as Christians could learn right now from our Puritan forefathers? Hmm. What are the things that they could teach us that yeah. that we really need? Yeah. Um, you know, I'll cheat some and, and reiterate some of what we've uh, already said that I, I do think is, is really important, which is a reassessment of how we think about um, political order and um, those types of things. I think that's something that, that I really have learned for a lot from them that I've written about some because I think it's important and compelling. Um, and, you know, we do live in a very uh, interesting little little time now where there is a lot of reassessment on many different levels of what's been going on, what's been taken as kind of gospel for a while, what is what the sacred cows are in political life. 
And so it's a really good time to look to other models. And if you kind of treat historical, um, you know, historical moments or historical um, uh, scenarios, I guess you would say, that are not yours, that are older, and treat them almost like going to a foreign country and saying, well, let's see how other people do this. And, you know, remove your stigma that we've talked about earlier about the Puritans and just see, you know, what was this like? There's a really good article from Timothy Breen, who's a great Puritan scholar, and um, I think Stephen Foster is his co-author. Um, it's an older article from maybe the 70s, but what they talk about is New England achieving an unprecedented level of, um, of really tranquility and social cohesion in their own time period. And while Europe is experiencing tons of war, and while their old country experiences civil war, other than external threats, um, there's really no problems. And that's incredible. They do it for like 80 years, right? Even for their time period. It's made, so it's worth studying. It's worth saying, okay, you know, what? what is so, this is very interesting because we don't have that now, maybe at any level in our, in our polity. Um, so first would be the, the political lessons that I think they can be mined for. You don't have to be compelled by all of them, but I think it's a, a worthy exercise. Um, the second one would be, um, I think, you know, the, the Puritan, some of the things everyone knows about the Puritans is their love for, of course, the, the word is good Protestants, um, their doctrine. But I, you know, the, the devotional stuff we've mentioned, I'm not down on that at all. Um, but I, I'm very compelled also by their, their actual preaching, which is not read as, as much. Um, you know, and sometimes it's difficult to get into the sort of Ramist outline logic that they have going on with, you know, 60 subpoints of the subpoint type deal. Um, but once you can get comfortable with it, it's a very, um, you know, so as maybe as rhetoricians is what I would appreciate about them in a time period when rhetoric and speaking was still so um, highly regarded. So in that way, I think important if you're a sermon junkie, if you're in seminary, if you're going to be a pastor, they're really good to read. Not that you would, I think Joel Beakey says this all the time, not to actually replicate them, but to let it, uh, let it sharpen your own rhetoric. So caring about the spoken word and thinking about our preaching um, as being the most important thing in the week. This is Harry Stout's book, The New England Soul talks about it's all on on sermons I thought that that was another you know great book that really got me excited and the way they think about their sermons not just their church life generally but the sermon itself um, was you know very convicting of they're, they're not going to miss this their entire life re weekly life revolves around uh, their preacher bringing the word to them and then and then of course lecturing on on theology and those sorts of things uh, so that would be the that would be sort of our um, our church life lesson is, you know, I always want to rehabilitate the sermon and it's a, it's a worthy and unique medium of communication, perhaps now more than ever, ever. Um, I'm not a Luddite. I don't hate technology, but I'm really a fan of being in person for people speaking. That's a weird thing to right. do now. Um, and I think it's different. Um, not sure what it is, but it's different. Um, so I would, I would say, especially after COVID, that's something not that, other groups can't teach you that, but the Puritans certainly do um, about uh, valuing the sermon, the spoken word, and, and living life together in, in person, you know. So okay. those would be my two lessons. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. This, 
this has been really good. And, and so I, I thank you for coming and you, you've given us plenty to, to chew on and think about for a while. So I, I appreciate it and, uh, and I hope we can talk again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Happy to do it anytime. Thank you.